The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. You can find our scripture reading in the book of Luke. If you do not have your own copy of scripture, you can find one in the row ahead of you. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles, it's on page 809. But we are in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 33 and going through 611. Once you find your place, please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 5, 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a, man with, and a man was there whose hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life, or destroy it. And after looking around them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were full with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Our sermon title this morning is going to be called The Savior's Offense. We're going to be looking at the offensiveness of Jesus in this way. If you look down at verse 11, you see a culmination of the theological elite, the religious leaders of the day, being filled with fury because of what Jesus is saying and doing. And they're offended by Jesus. And I think that is the thought that Luke has before us this morning. And so our main idea is going to be this, that because Jesus refuses to be squeezed into man-made religious molds, many find Jesus to be offensive. 
all of us in some way, shape, or form have a mold, a thought of who we think Jesus should be, what we think he should be like. The most religious among us and the most irreligious among us. If you were to say, describe to me, how do you think Jesus should speak, think, act? We have an answer for that and what we know if we've been around Jesus long enough and in his word is this Jesus refuses to check the box of everything that we think he ought to be and that's for our good but because of that many of us find Jesus offensive we are offended by him and we're going to see how Jesus is doing this he's exposing things that many think he should be and do, he's going to expose those things because he's actually a lover of those who are lost. And that's what we're going to find this morning. So what I want to do is I want to hit pause. I want to pray for us this morning. And I do that um, on any given Sunday morning because we, we need the power of the Holy Spirit, amen, to make these things make sense. A lot of times what we can do is we will read stories and episodes like this in the life of Jesus, and what we want to do is just sort of maybe angrily grab the Pharisees by the scruff of the neck and bang their heads against the wall be like, why can you not see how dense you are to these things? All the while not recognizing that the man or the woman in the mirror is just as dense. We can be so blinded to these things, Yes. A phrase, I say this here just because I, I, don't know, I think, you know, I, I don't want to be the kind of guy who just lays everything at the foot of Jesus to sort of just sanctify it, these kinds of, you know, about any thought that comes out of, out of my mouth. But this past week, just thinking about, you know, my walk with Jesus, these sorts of things, and the phrase that came to mind, I think, just in talking with Jesus, reading his word, was this phrase, this idea of just growing weary of doing good. In Galatians 6, Paul encourages us, do not grow weary of doing good, for in due time you will reap. The question is, why does he have to say this? I think the reason why he has to say, do not grow weary of doing good, is for the same reason why the family in your neighborhood that has the pool that all the kids come to swim in has the sign on the edge of the pool, don't pee in the pool. Why do they have that sign on there? Because kids are peeing in the pool, right? And so it's like we need to tell them not to do the thing that they're prone to want to do. And so why is Paul telling us not to grow weary of doing good is because he knows us well enough to know that we can and do and are right now, many of us most likely, weary of doing good. The good of coming to church on the Sunday morning. The good of being in God's Word. The good of praying to our Savior. The good of loving Jesus the good of confessing sin, the good of serving the least, the last, the lost, the good of walking in the light, the good of confessing I need the gospel applied to my life, the good of seeing that Jesus is just good. Some of us are maybe just grown weary of Jesus himself. Maybe some of us are just flat out weary of this whole Jesus thing and you're teetering on the brink. I just don't know if I can continue to walk forward in this, in this path of following Jesus. I'm weary of doing good. The good news is Jesus knows this, and he's not, he's not put off by your weariness. 
It's actually your very weariness that qualifies you to come and throw yourself down at his feet. Amen? That's the goodness of the gospel. The gospel isn't clean yourself up, get unweary, and then get back to Jesus. The goodness of the gospel is you can come and fall at the feet of Jesus with your absolute and utter weariness. And so I think we're going to see measures of this this morning. And I say all that so that we can pray. We can ask for the help of the Holy Spirit that maybe in our weariness of doing good, that we would see Jesus as the lighthouse that he is from this text. Amen? So don't just take a nap right now. Don't just be a spectator right now. This is an invitation from your pastor to participate in prayer, asking for the Holy Spirit to just light up our world wherever we're at right now with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we could see Jesus this morning from this text. Okay, let's do this. Lord, I, on behalf of the Jesus family I belong to, I I want to pray for them, and I'm including myself in this prayer. Lord, would you help us in our weariness to come and cast ourselves on you? Would you crush the damnable lie that the enemy is whispering in some ears right now that Jesus loathes me and my weariness. And I think I need to clean myself up before I can come back to Jesus. That is a lie. And I'm asking Jesus, you would puncture and obliterate that lie. And you would woo, draw, wow us with the good news of a Savior who is gentle and lowly and has a care for weary sinners and weary sufferers. We need you, Holy Spirit, to shine the light that has to be shown on this text for us to see Jesus. And we're going to rest in your power and trust in your power for this to be done. Holy Spirit, Please do this for the namesake of Jesus and the glory and the fame of God our Father. It is in the name of our resurrected King Jesus I pray these things. Amen. I want you to park this question in your mind. It will be a question that permeates just where we're going to go this morning. And it's going to be a question that we will eventually circle back around to at the end of our sermon this morning. And the question is this, does Jesus offend you? Does Jesus offend you? Or if you want to word this question another way, maybe aiming at the same bullseye, maybe you can ask this question like this. Do you find Jesus to be offensive? So one is Jesus is offending you. One is sort of the more passive idea of like, I've been on the receiving end of finding Jesus offensive. He's he's offended me. So we're coming at this the same way. Does Jesus offend you? Do you find him to be offensive? whether it's due to his actions that you read about in the scriptures, whether it's perhaps due to the words that he says as he interprets for us what it means to be a follower of God, to be a follower of himself. 
For many people, the answer is yes. Jesus offends me, and I find him to be offensive. And if you can say yes to these questions, then good news, because you are perfectly prepared to grasp the context of what is going on in the words, verses that are before us this morning. Ever since his announcement a couple of weeks ago when Jesus was in the synagogue at Nazareth and he rolls the scroll of Isaiah open to chapter 61 and says this spirit-anointed savior figure that we're talking about in Isaiah 61, this is me. I am the fulfillment of this. Ever since that moment back in Luke chapter 4, there has been this low-grade grumbling against Jesus' ministry that's been boiling underneath the surface of it all. But this morning, the grumble train rolls forward as the religious leader's objection to Jesus' manifesto, the objection to his mission is going to boil over into outright hostility toward God where they are going to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Matthew 12, Mark 3 record these exact same events and Matthew and Mark say, go so far as to say they are actually discussing with one another how they might destroy Jesus. The grumbling is now over into hostility, even this early in Jesus' ministry. Now, we see this and we read these things. We look with our eyes at verse 11 of how they are filled with fury and they want to destroy Jesus. And hopefully it's prompting the question in your heart, in your mind, that maybe goes like this. Why in the world are they so offended by Jesus? Why do they find him so offensive that they are willing to go berserk to the point of murder? What is going on here? What is lying underneath the text? In a broad sense and in a narrow sense, I think the scriptures help us grasp the context of what's going on here. In a broad sense, the Old Testament answers the question, why are these people so offended by Jesus? And you can go back to a place like Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, the psalmist tells us that against the Lord's anointed king, in other words, against Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Lord's anointed king, the nations are going to rage against him, the peoples are going to plot against him, the kings and the rulers of the earth are going to set themselves against this royal figure. Jump into a place like Isaiah 53. And the prophet tells us that this spirit-anointed servant would be a man who is despised and rejected. So in a broad sense, the Old Testament says, hey, when this figure shows up on the screen and he's now here on the scene, what you need to know is it's not going to be a giant parade of, wow, we're glad he's finally here. There's going to be a lot of offended people who despise, rage, and reject him. You want to bring it in more narrow to like the particular context of Jesus talking with these men and these religious leaders about fasting and prayer and healing on a Sabbath and all these sorts of things. In the narrow context, Luke is revealing to us that these people offended by Jesus are offended because they simply refuse to accept the implications of who he is and what he's come to do. It really does come down to that. 
the implication that a savior is on the scene and what this means according to God and not them, they are not going to like that. They're offended by the fact that Jesus is going to say, yeah, I know the way you've been approaching this whole religious thing, but you're actually off base. That's going to torque them. I've come to actually die and save sinners. For them, blasphemy, how dare the Savior, if that's who you are, talk like this. Forgiving of sins, only God can do that. And brother, you don't fit the mold of who I think God should be. I'm offended and find you to be offensive. This is what's going on. And so as the manifesto in the Nazareth synagogue, I am the spirit-anointed Savior, and I am come to bring the good news to the poor, the blind, the oppressed, those who are captive, and it's going to look like this, boots on the ground. It's going to look like healing. It's going to look like calling. It's going to look like forgiving. It's going to look like me issuing calls to repentance of sin. The religious leaders, the religious of the crowd, those who say, I know what a Savior should be, and this is not it. They keep seeing it. They keep seeing it. They keep seeing it. They keep seeing it. And they are catching on repeat the drift that instead of Jesus fitting their mold of what the Savior should be, Jesus is exploding their mold. And they just flat out hate this. Because Jesus refuses to be squeezed into man-made religious molds, many are just going to find him offensive. And it's this point right here, saints, that main idea, because Jesus refuses to be squeezed into man-made ways of thinking, man-made traditions, man-made religious presuppositions of here's who I think Jesus should be instead of letting Jesus and the Word of God inform us who Jesus is when anyone comes along, fellow believer, other follower of Jesus, Jesus himself, and says, I know what you're thinking, I know what you're acting, I know how you're behaving, but I'm telling you it's not in line with who I am and what I came to do, people will be offended. And it's that point right there that makes this text more pertinent to us than we might even dare, dare to understand. Because some of us are already checking out right now. Sabbath day controversies, I have never thought about that for a nanosecond in my life. Who cares? Who cares if they got all worked up about Jesus healing someone on a particular day? I do not care. What I'm wanting you to see is that the operating principle behind these things is this. Jesus is exploding molds, presupposed molds of who I think Jesus should be, and people rage to the point of murder against him. And that mentality that is in the minds of the theological elite of the day is the same mentality that permeates religious circles and irreligious circles alike today. And that is why this text is important for us this morning. Now Luke is going to lead us to see these things by first showing us point number one, that people were offended because Jesus upends the old and brings the new. That's point number one. Jesus upends the old and brings the new, therefore people are offended. That is what's going on with this whole prayer and fasting and old wineskins and old clothes and all these little things that he's saying. He's upending the old and bringing the new. In other words, Jesus is looking to those who are finding it hard to accept that if Jesus is who he says he is, his manifesto and his mission defined according to him, he's the only one who has the right to define this, if this is what this is about, 
This means a radical change is coming and is here now. They are, they, let's give credit where credit is due. They understand this. Jesus is saying something radically new is on the scene right now. And so continuing from his interaction with Levi and his friends that we saw last week, Luke rolls right into verse 33 and says this, and they, they being those religious leaders, the Pharisees, their scribes that we saw last week who got their knickers in a twist because Jesus was hanging out with sinners are now looking to Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself and says this, the disciples of John often fast. They offer prayers. This is verse 33. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But why on earth do your disciples eat and drink? You see, in a nutshell, the complaint against Jesus really comes down to a question. Why are Jesus and his disciples bucking the standard religious pattern of the day? This is what normal people do if they're going to be overly religious. You are not doing this. Why are you bucking, bucking the pattern? Why are you going against the standard tradition of things? The disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees fast often, offer prayers, but yours are out here partying, eating, and drinking. Maybe put yourself in this place. They're coming along, peeking into Matthew, Levi, the tax collector's windows, seeing the aftermath of a very good party, and they're just going like, well, what, what, what gives? Like, we're out here fasting and praying, and they're in here eating and drinking. This seems to be a sign of someone who's overly not religious, especially if you are who you say you are as the spirit-anointed servant. Now, what's interesting is this. If you go back into the Old Testament, in Old Testament times, what you will learn is this. According to the law of Moses, there was one required fast for Israel, like a day when it was required for them to do this, and it was the Day of Atonement. Go back in your mind to Leviticus 16, right, talking about what we we're learning about on that day, the people of God were required to fast. But over time, the religious leaders wanted to prove how earnest, how devout they were, so they eventually began to fast twice a week. Tradition has it they would fast on Monday and then fast on Thursday. And then instead of them approaching it like this, I know what God has required, but in my pursuit of Him, I'm going to take that and apply it to my life in this way. They began to say, well, actually, I know what God said, but actually here's what I say, and you must now do this. They put the requirement of their interpretation and hung it like weights on people's necks, saying, if you do not live up to my interpretation of this, then you are the one who is sinning against God. But the fact that this supposed fulfiller of Isaiah 61 is not doing this, fasting twice a week like they do, it puts them completely wrapped around the axle and they demand to know why. Jesus, why are you not doing this? Verse 34, Jesus explains when he says this, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? I think I've said this before and I love it and I'll continue to say, I love how Jesus consistently answers a question with a question. <laughs> like man, he's just so good at being like, yeah, I know what you want me to do. You're baiting the hook and you're just hoping I'll just like, you know, bite onto it. But actually, let me ask you, a question. And it's so almost always a question that you never imagine. They want to know about prayer and fasting. And he's like, let's talk about weddings. It's like, okay, I guess we'll go there, right? Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The implied answer is, of course not. This is insanity. When you show up to a wedding reception, the bride and groom have been married. The last thing, the absolute last thing you're going to do is have someone come in through the door. How dare you have punch in your hand, slam your cake on the ground, rip your clothes, put on, ash, uh, put on ashes, put on sackcloth. Don't you dare eat a thing. 
I'm going to call them out. Dario, Michaela are going to be getting married in December. If I walked into their wedding reception, kicked in the door and started screaming, now is the time of fasting, now is not the time for feasting, Dario would grab me by the scruff of the neck and throw me out of my ear. Properly and rightly so. This is party time. The groom is here. It's feasting. It's not for fasting. That is what Jesus is talking about. He's building a world that they know about. So Jesus is saying, if you can grasp the concept that when the groom is with his bride and it is time for feasting and it's not time for fasting, then you can grasp the concept, the larger spiritual concept that's going on. So in other words, just as inappropriate as it would be to tell wedding guests to drop punch, drop cake, begin fasting, it's equally inappropriate for the disciples of Jesus to fast. The implication that Jesus is putting before them is that Jesus is yet again fulfilling more Old Testament imagery as the long-promised bridegroom that has been sent for God's people. If you go back through the prophets, there's this imagery that continually pops up, spirit-led imagery where the prophets talk about God as a husband and those whom he's saving as his bride. And this language begins to swirl and show how there's this coming bridegroom who's going to rescue these people, the people of God, the bride, and there's going to be this beautiful union of joy and happiness. And so what Jesus is doing is leaning on imagery that he knows that they know, and he's saying, the bridegroom is here now, because the bridegroom is the spirit-anointed servant. The bridegroom is David's royal heir. The bridegroom is the son of man. All of these are encapsulated in me. Now, he says, there's going to come a day when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Already, Jesus, I would argue, knows the cross is coming. On that day, they will fast, but not now. With his arrival, the bridegroom of Israel is here. It is wedding time in redemptive history. This is kingdom come, feast, do not fast. That's why my disciples are eating and drinking. But now notice that the Pharisees just flat out do not understand the times in which they are living. This is a radical thing. Jesus is changing. We're too familiar with these words again. Because what Jesus is saying is this, the old covenant, new covenant, like the things are changing right now. The fulfillment of all these things are literally unfurling before you. The new day, the new age is dawning where kingdom come is here, citizens in this kingdom, life with God, under the rule of God. It can be had here and now. Why? Because I'm here, and what the Pharisees are wrestling to grasp is this literal change, this radical change is unfurling right before them. They don't see it, nor do they want to, which is why Jesus exposes their hearts, starting in verse 36, telling them a parable. Listen, no one tears a piece from a new garment, puts it on an old garment. Why? Because if he does, he's going to tear the new, in essence, ruining that new piece, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Second illustration, proving the same point, no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. When it ferments, it's going to be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Here's what you do with new wine. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. In other words, if it is true, if it is true that the bridegroom of God's people has come making life with God, 
under the rule of God, possible for all who turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. If this is true in Jesus of Nazareth, then Jesus and his work cannot be tacked on to the old. Jesus and his work cannot be poured into the existing traditions of Judaism. In other words, Jesus can't be a cherry on top of your life. Jesus can't just be tacked on. Yeah, I love money too much. I love job too much. I love comfort too much. And yeah, I probably need a little bit of Jesus. So I'm just going to take the Jesus cherry and plop it on top of my life. Jesus is challenging them and thus challenging us that if you're trying to just patch Jesus onto your life like a band-aid, it does not work. It will not work. It might look good for a little bit, but eventually the cloth is going to shrink, the wineskin is going to burst, and then the temptation will be like, look, the Jesus band-aid didn't get the job done. Jesus obviously stings, and boink, we're going to kick Jesus out. But what we try to do is something foolish. We try to patch Jesus onto our life. We try to pour a little bit of Jesus into the existing wineskin of my self-centered pursuit of me. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't do that. You need a new wineskin. You need a new life in me. You need to be forgiven in me. The old's got to go. The new's got to come. It's got to be centered all on me. But the problem is with this way of thinking is that people love their old ways and they love to cling to what they have become comfortable with. Perfect illustration would be yours truly, Pastor Jonathan. I am the guy who will go to a restaurant, order one dish, love it, and then order that dish until the day I die or Jesus comes back. See, I got one fellow brother right over there. My wife isn't so hot about that. She's like, why don't you just try something new? It's like, well, there's a little bit of risk there, isn't there? I might order a dish that you say is good and it proves overly ungood and then I've ruined the meal. But if I would have just ordered the hamburger that I know is good, then it will be good. I'm the guy who goes to Red Lobster and orders the hamburger because it's like, dude, you can't just mess up a hamburger, right? Jan right here is just shaking her head in shame. You didn't know your pastor. You didn't know you were so much better than your pastor, did you? So... I'm that kind of guy. Well, look, if you're, if you're that kind of guy, if you're that kind of gal where you're like, I'm comfortable with this, I know this, this old way is good, then you know exactly what's going on right now in this text. Jesus knows this is how people think. He knows that people love their old ways of thinking. They love to cling to what they become comfortable with. And that's why he says in verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. The implication is, yeah, the old's good enough. Ah, there might be some better new wine out there. I don't know. I'm definitely not going to try. I'm comfortable with what I know. Thank you, Jesus, very much. The old is good enough. And Jesus is here to say, when we approach Jesus like this, it is to the detriment of our soul. You see, he is well aware that the religious leaders who had grown so used to the Old Testament way of relating to God, they were not going to like the implications of his manifesto. But it is time for a change as the upending of the old and the bringing of the new are ushered in by the Spirit-anointed Savior. And what we will soon see are Pharisees who are offended by Jesus because of this. 
But that isn't the only thing that's going to offend the religious leaders. Point number two, we also see this, that they are offended because Jesus upends man-made religious thinking. And that's what's going on in those two Sabbath day controversies. They are offended because Jesus upends man-made religious thinking. There's extreme overlap between what we just seen and what we see now before us. But there are some differences. Notice this. That in these verses, verses 1 through 11, Luke drives this truth home that Jesus upends man-made religious thinking by showing two Sabbath day controversies where Jesus exposes something. He's going to expose how man-made religious thinking is doing harm and destroying life instead of doing good and saving life. Just look there at chapter 6, verse 1. Tune in to the use of the word lawful. On a Sabbath, verse 1, while he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked, ate some heads of grain, rubbed them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now look down at verse 9. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy? The key word here is lawful. There's something going on where they are looking at Jesus and they're drawing the conclusion that what he is doing is breaking the law of God. There is something not lawful going on by eating some grain on the Sabbath. There's something not lawful going on by healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. According to the religious leaders, something not lawful is going on. That's the key word there, lawful. But now here's the twist. According to the law of Moses, looking at the whole grain eating incident, it was actually lawful for someone to do that. It was lawful for someone to do that. According to the law of Moses, it was lawful for someone to snack on heads of grain as they were walking through a field. If they had a need and they were going through a field, Deuteronomy 23 verse 25 says this, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand. This is a lawful thing to do. If you've got a pressing need, you're allowed to do this. In other words, what the disciples were doing was actually in line with God's law. But according to God's law, sifted through the sieve of man-made tradition, the Pharisees are standing there saying, "Uh, Dear sir, we beg to differ. They also knew God's law, they would say. And what we know is that on the Sabbath day, you can go into Genesis 2, you can go into Exodus 19, and you go into other places where you see God's law talking about the Sabbath day. What they would say is, we know the Sabbath day is meant to be a day of rest. The Sabbath day is not meant to be a day of work. So, says the religious leaders of the day, in order to ensure that absolutely no one gets close whatsoever to even potentially, possibly, maybe, Breaking the law of the Sabbath by doing some work on it, we're going to add some extra rules to this thing to the tune of 613. 
So what are they doing? Heaping up rule after 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 rule. Just banking sure of building a giant hedge to make sure no one gets even close to it. And what they've done is they've blunted the goodness of God's law, which was meant to bring life and thriving and flourishing and rest on the day of Sabbath. And it's actually become a weapon in their hands. And they're bludgeoning people with their weighted down extraneous frivolities that they're slapping on this thing. Amongst those 613 commandments given to help folks keep the Sabbath, there were actually 39 categories within that 613 of ways that you could work by accident. And so they said, here's 39 categories of forbidden work to make sure that no one is even going to come close to reaping. Thus the Pharisees' accusation there in verse 2, that you are doing something unlawful, is based on their interpretation of the law. It's actually not based on the law itself. Because the law of Moses says, Deuteronomy 23, you can actually do this. It's not based on the plain reading of the law. So what's Jesus going to do in response? He actually turns to the Scripture. Look there in verse 3. He turns to the Scripture and he says, well, let's just reason out loud over another, quote, not lawful, quote, event in the life of King David. These guys are religious enough to say King David never found himself in this place. So it's a brilliant scripture reference for Jesus to go to. Let's go look at another not lawful event in the life of David. And Jesus asked them, have you not read? Which is just, I don't know, funny, maybe tongue in cheek. I don't know if Jesus has given them the old wink, wink in the moment. It's like, really? The Pharisees, the scribes, they prided themselves on knowing the word of God inside and out. But what he's actually saying is, I don't know that you know it as well as you think you know it. Have you not read what David did? This is 1 Samuel 21. When David, when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not, here it is, lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to, to those with him. In other words, Jesus is asking them, he wants to know why was it okay for David to be allowed to do what he did? king was in need. His followers had a need that needed to be met. They were hungry. He goes and he eats of something that was not lawful, but there is no hint in Scripture whatsoever that how dare David do this. There's no intimation of anything in the Scriptures that he is doing something unlawful here. And so Jesus is pulling that reference forward because it's very similar if you notice. Jesus is the Davidic king. He's got followers around him. There's a need that needs to be met. And so he's saying, why was it okay for him, but not okay for me if I am the, the true king? It seems the answer comes down to this. It's because of David's authority as God's anointed king. So in this particular event, when David, God's anointed king, was in need, the rule gave way to compassion in order to meet a true and pressing need. But for the Pharisees standing in front of Jesus, listen, but for the Pharisees standing in front of Jesus, the rules and regulations of man-made religious thinking had developed into burdensome traditions that undermined the spirit of the law of the Sabbath day. Namely, that the Sabbath instead of it being a time of celebration and a time of rest and a time of contemplation about the riches and the majesty of God, the Sabbath day had become a time of human oppression. It was oppressive to observe the Sabbath, and it was never meant to be that way. 
And so Jesus says, as the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath, he's about to say here, I'm going to put a stop to this oppression, which lines up with his manifesto, does it not? Good news to the oppressed. And put a stop to what he does. When he looks to them and says one sentence, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, if it was lawful for King David to do what he did, then the one who is greater than David, me, the one who's born in the lineage of David, me, the one who rules as the rightful heir to the throne of David, me, I also have authority to do what he does. As David's heir, the Sabbath is under Jesus' authority, not the other way around. Thus, it's his interpretation of the Sabbath that goes, not their man-made traditions and interpretations that go. He is the Lord. He's correcting oppression. He is making wrongs turn into right. But notice that all this just simply sets up the next controversy, which results in the religious establishment's hostility rising to a murderous pitch. Verse 6, Jesus enters the synagogue. This is a different synagogue, different day, different time, but also on the Sabbath. Jesus was in this synagogue, and he was teaching according to verse 6. And notice that there was a man there whose right hand was withered. Scribes and the Pharisees were watching Jesus like a hawk. They wanted to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Later in Luke 18, I believe it is, Jesus has another Sabbath day healing controversy show up. And if I remember rightly, Luke records the words of the synagogue leader in that moment saying, listen, there are six days in a week which you can show up to be healed. Do not show up on the Sabbath to be healed. That's the kind of mentality that was permeating the religious thinking of the day. Very compassionless, yes? So similar to the grain-plucking episode, the religious saw healing as a work, thus something to be avoided on the Sabbath. But, Luke says, Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. The wind with the withered hand rose from where he was sitting, came and stood next to Jesus. And Jesus says to them, the them, I believe, is not only the religious leaders, for surely them, but everyone standing around, I ask you this question. Is it, note the word, lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, and the implication is they stood there in silence. Mark actually says Jesus got like righteously angry in his heart because he's looking at the ant. You could roll in any two-year-old and say, do you think it's right on the Sabbath day to do good or to do harm? Do good. Yeah, is that obvious? To save life or destroy life? Uh, Save life. Yeah, is that obvious? But the other gospels tell us they were so steeped into their mold of what the Savior should be, a wrong mold, that they refuse to answer rightly. Because to do so would expose, we might actually be wrong on this point. And, the, and it says, he got angry. Jesus was righteously angryified Because they refused to come to the Savior. This is an unrighteous anger. This is righteous anger. They remain silent. And their stubborn refusal to answer 
provides the most compelling evidence so far in Luke's gospel that the old garment and the old wineskins of the religious establishment need replacing. If this is the standard operating procedure for how people are to come to God, if it is come to this point where those who are meant to be the shepherds, the pastors, the preachers, the leaders, the teachers, the representatives of God have come to the point where they were so pridefully, sinfully stubborn that they're going to remain silent in face of the most obvious question that could ever come their way because they will not do what needs to be done in order to say, I think I might just have Jesus wrong here. Jesus says, that's why the old wineskin's got to go. That's why the old garment's got to go. Something needs to change here. Because the Pharisees were so intent upon protecting their man-made religious rules, they were neither willing to do good nor to save life on the Sabbath. Thus, for Jesus to do what he did, it fully offends them. Sends them into berserker mode. Fury, incensed, rage. We need to get together and figure out how to destroy this guy quick, fast, and in a hurry. It's interesting. They're unwilling to offend the law of God on the Sabbath, but they're very willing to break the one about committing murder. Amen? And that's how crazy sin is. Sin is insanity. It leads us to go, I'm going to righteously stand on this one while over here sinning like the devil. And we can't see that in our own lives sometimes. That's what's going on here. It exposes them. Jesus asking that question exposes them as hypocrites. And when Jesus exposes a person, listen, when Jesus exposes a person, when Jesus upends their man-made religious way of thinking, I'm telling you this, people will go one of two ways. Either they will fall in humble submission to the royal son of man, or they will rage with fury at being offended by him. I'm just telling you, you've seen it, you've witnessed it, you may have experienced it in your own life. Jesus comes in love and he uses the word. He uses a preacher. He uses a pastor. He uses a friend. He uses a counselor. He uses a loved one. He uses a spouse. He uses a child to expose something in us that maybe we've got this whole Jesus thing wrong here on this key point. And what we have in that moment is the opportunity to either say, you know what, I may not be be able to see Jesus clearly in all moments of all life. It just could be possible that maybe I'm wrong here on this point. And so I'm going to humble myself and submit myself to Jesus in this way, coming to him, the perfect one, the son of man, who loved me enough to keep me from remaining in this place. Or we rise up in pride and say, I will rage with fury against Jesus. How dare he expose this in my life? And we rage. I know you've seen this, and I know you've experienced this in your own life. And as a side note, it is important to note that the servants are not greater than the master. If people were offended by Jesus upending their religion, or even if 
upending their irreligion, then what you need to know is followers of Jesus can expect the same thing. When you walk in the life of other believers, when you walk in the life of unbelievers, when you in humility go before people and say, I see what you say you believe, but I see behavior that is contrary to what you believe, and in that moment you speak a truth, not a vitriolic truth, not a hate-filled truth, not an angry, I'm better, superior, you're inferior, you're lower kind of truth, but you speak a truth that I know what you say about the gospel, I know what you say about Jesus, I know what you say you love, I know what you say, and I'm not doubting what you say you love, but I just see this behavior in your life that is disconnected from what you say, I'm telling you, there are going to be times in your life when people look at you and are offended, how dare you tell me that? How dare you tell me I need to go back to the gospel again? How dare you tell me this is a spiritual matter? How dare you come and say and point and poke and expose these sorts of things? Because in that moment, we're starting to slip into this kind of Sabbath day mentality thinking kind of thing. Jesus, how dare you come? I'm offended that you would dare to even presuppose that I might have this wrong. And when we image Jesus in a very Jesus-centered way, I'm just telling you it's going to happen. Some of us will be in those kinds of places. Maybe some of us are in those kinds of places now. Some of us might be on the I'm offended side of thing. I'm offended that you dare to think that my behavior might be off base from what I believe. I'm offended to think that you might think that I might need to go confess, that I might not be seeing Jesus clearly here, that I might need to go back to the gospel again. It offends me that you approach me in this way. It's going to go one of two ways, saints. Either we will fall in humble submission to the royal son of man, or we will rage with fury at being offended by him. And so this is why I said remember the question, because we're swinging it all the way back around to the beginning of the sermon as we round third and head to home. I'm putting the question before you again. Does Jesus offend you? Has Jesus ever offended you by what he says? Has he ever offended you by what he does? Has he ever offended you by what he demands of those who follow him? You see, Jesus states that he is the Savior for all people from all nations, and that offends some of us. I don't like the fact that he might be saving someone other than me, who doesn't look like me, who doesn't think like me. That offends me that Jesus isn't just saving a bunch of white-skinned Americans with blonde hair and blue eyes. I'm telling you, that exists. And it's damnable and it's insanity. But people are offended that Jesus is the Savior of all nations. It offends them. Jesus corroborates that God's plan for marriage from the beginning is one man and one woman, and that flat-out offends people. Jesus clearly says that all roads do not lead to God because he alone is the only way to the Father, and that offends some of us. Jesus doesn't promote self-help, but instead self-denial. And Jesus doesn't ask you to believe in yourself, but to believe in him whom God has sent, and that offends some of us. We're offended by his teaching on money, we're offended by his teaching on sexuality, we're offended by the fact that he calls me to love my enemies as he loves my enemies. Some of us want Jesus to be like us, where we look at those we don't like and say, surely Jesus doesn't like them either. And then Jesus shows up and says, actually, I came and I died for them. 
And actually to love them as I love them, that's what I'm calling you to, and that offends us to no, no degree of understanding. We find it offensive that he allows suffering and discomfort in our lives. And we take offense at Jesus' stubborn refusal to perfectly fit into our preferred political categories. How dare Jesus love someone on the opposite side of the political aisle? Doesn't he know how wrong they are? Ultimately, for many of us, we simply find Jesus offensive because the very fact that Jesus is called Savior implies that I need to be saved from something. Have you ever thought about that? This person is such and such a ruler. Why is he called a ruler? Well, that implies something. I need to be ruled. Jesus, your Savior, what does that mean? Well, that means he needs to be saving somebody or saving something. And for Jesus to be called Savior, what this implies is that I just might need to be saved. And what this means for me is this. I just may not be as good a person as I believe myself to be. And that offends me. Friends, listen. Many, many, many are cool with a non-offensive Jesus. You're going out to the world today, you can water, I'm just telling you, it's possible, you could do this. You could go and water Jesus down to the lowest common denominator where you have the most milk toast, plain Jane vanilla, non-offensive Jesus, and people will hail and lift up and worship and champion and cheer on that Jesus till the cows come home. They will do it, but it is not the Jesus of the scriptures. The Jesus of the scriptures, if you are a follower of Jesus, the Jesus of the scriptures will offend you at some point in time in your life. When you approach Jesus and say, I really think it should go like this, and he's like, I love you too much to let you see that that's actually not going to be for life. It's going to be for destroying. It's not going to be for good. It's going to be for harm. And I'm going to call you from that to this better thing. Many are cool with a non-offensive Jesus, but listen, if you have never been offended by Jesus, you may very well have a Jesus in your own image. If you're like, you know what, Jesus has actually never offended me. It could be this. Just wait. There's coming a day when it's going to happen, or it could be this. You've crafted a Jesus in your own image, and so if, we all, if you have a Jesus that always only ever agrees with you on every single thing you think, say, or do, there might be the wee bit of the chance that you have a Jesus created in your own image. Not a Jesus of the scriptures. You have a savior according to your own design. But just remember, saints, listen. Like two more minutes, listen. You, you need to remember this. The savior's offense that we've been talking about this morning, this is not Jesus just being a punk. Jesus isn't just punking dudes out for the sake of punking dudes out. He's not a jerk who's just existing looking for, for a fight. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Sabbath's Lord. He is the authentic Savior who has come to seek and to save the lost. Listen, Jesus knows how it is possible to be very religious, but also be very much on the way to hell. And with the, as much love and care as I can muster for you, you need to know it is possible to die very religious and wake up to not see Jesus, but to be an eternity apart from him. 
because you went to your grave believing in a Jesus that you've crafted in your own image. And Jesus loves you too much. He loved them too much to let you go on in this way. And so Jesus speaks with powerful words and he speaks with words full of authority. And that reality is always going to offend someone. But I dare say this, that Jesus offends us because he loves us. He loves us. He, that's why he says, I'm going to expose this little dark corner of your heart that you thought was A-okay, but actually is not. Why? Not because I'm punkin', not because I'm hateful, not because I'm against you, not because I'm full of vitriol and I just love confrontational fights. I'm very pugilistic and I just love to just really see the world burn. I, I, that's not Jesus' attitude. Jesus comes as the gentle, lowly Savior who loves. And he knows that unless this thing is exposed in my life, I will walk the path of the religious here that were in front of us. I will close my eyes in death only to wake up to an eternity in hell apart from the Savior because I went to my grave believing a pseudo-Savior. And Jesus loves us too much to walk grasping onto fake saviors. So if you find Jesus this morning offending you, know this, he offends us to awaken us to see our need to repent and turn to him. So if Jesus is offending you this morning, then I'm encouraging you to see it for what it is. It is a loving invitation to die to self and embrace Jesus as the absolute Savior that you need. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in need of you, very much in need of you. We come to you confessing how we are very, very prone to craft a Jesus in our own image, according to our own designs. Believer, unbeliever alike, it's just, it's just so easy. And so my prayer is simple, Lord, I'm asking this. Would you lovingly offend? Would you expose? Not because you're angry or mean, but because you love. Lord, do this for your name's sake. Do this for your glory. Do this so that many might be saved and continue walking arm in arm, leaning on you. Jesus, it's in your precious name we pray these things. Amen.